0: Hello there. Welcome. Welcome to the Biblos podcast. We're so glad that you've joined us today. We have some exciting stuff in store for you. We have a special treat today. We're, we're actually doing a podcast with another podcast group called Crucial Conversations. And these are uh, some great guys that have put together some wonderful content. And we took a little time to, to go over some of my family history and some of the missional dynamics that, that I've done. They wanted to interview me for their podcast, and so we went over a lot of stuff, and I thought we'd share it with you today. So I hope you enjoy this. With This is a long one, guys, so you can, you can hit play and get on the treadmill and burn off calories and hear about the good things of God. <laughs> Hopefully it can be a blessing to you. Um, keep on sending your questions in. Subscribe and, and hit the like button and, and join in the conversation. Some of you have asked, how can we ask questions? Um, you, can, you can comment in the sections down underneath. You can contact me on Twitter, uh, na ursin at Twitter. Um, contact me on Instagram. We can connect, and, and hopefully we can continue the conversation, continue to dialogue about the great things of God. We hope you're enjoying the Biblos Network and, and the, the exploring of the Word of God and the, the wonderful promises that He gives to us. So, God bless you. I look forward to continuing this as we go forward, and I hope you enjoy the podcast today. God bless you.
1: So, it is my honor today to have as a guest on the Crucial Conversation podcast, Brother Nathaniel Urshan. And uh, the first time that I remember meeting Brother uh, Urshan, he obviously made a very uh, big impression on me. He had just preached at peak, I believe, so I'm not sure how many were at peak the year, or the, this particular year, but probably close to a couple of thousand people. And the following week, he was in Jonesboro at a neighboring church that was a storefront church. We had probably upwards 30, 40 people that was that were at that church. And uh, I was so impressed because I've listened to Brother Urshan preach for years, and he preached the same in the small church as he would at the big conference. And then whenever he got done preaching, he went and he, he took the time to not just greet people as just the standard high and by, but actually uh, took the time to get to know people. And, and I I remember when he first came to shake my hand, uh, he kind of stood there for a minute, like, well, is there anything you want to talk about? And to me, I was like, this is, you know, this is brother Urshan. And he's actually taken the time for all of these different people. And, and to me, I, I I love people that are genuine and they're authentic. And to me, it was a testimony to, to the character of our guest today. And so brother Urshan, I thank you for coming on the crucial conversation podcast and having a conversation with me. Regrettably, Tony couldn't be with us today, but uh, looking forward to this conversation with you,
0: man, I'm honored to be here with you, brother. Um, I remember that service in Jonesboro and, um, We had a wonderful time, wonderful service, beautiful spirit. Um, I remember the peak conference as well. And, um, you know, I I guess I never thought of it the way you described it because I just think of people as people, and people are fascinating. Everybody's got a story. Everybody has a place they're coming from. And I think maybe um, authenticity is something that, God likes in His people, (laughs) so I pray. I pray I'm able to make those connections.
1: Absolutely, and so, like to me, uh, and just just recently, before we had even scheduled this, I had thought of that service again because I was asked to preach at a small church that was going through kind of a hard time that that neighbors our church in, in another town, and knowing kind of what I was getting into. You know, I was thinking, well, there's not that many people. And then I, I went back to that, and I was like, you know, to me, it was it was an example that there are people that still need ministry. And, and and you don't just give your best whenever there's just a large crowd. Whenever there's people that need to hear the gospel and they need to be encouraged and they need their faith built up, that, that they still deserve the preacher's best, the, the best they can present. And so, uh, and it's like I said, it made a very, very big impression on me. So I I thank you for that. Man, Um, absolutely. So, uh, one of the reasons that to have you on, of course, is, uh, one of the most recognizable things uh, about you is of course your last name. Anyone in the apostolic church knows the last name Urshan. Um, I I was thinking, um, Actually, talking to Jason Weatherly about 20 minutes before the podcast. And one of the things that he actually had, uh, texted me, he was like, one question that he would be interested to hear is, do you ever feel any like uh, pressure bearing that last name?
0: That's a good question. Um, obviously, people identify with my great-grandfather, A.D. Urshan, and my grandfather, N.A. Urshan. Um, they, they might know my father, N.P. Urshan, my brother, Joel Urshan. Um I think when I was younger, I felt pressure. I I could feel the weight of the responsibility of the heritage that had been passed down to us. But you mentioned um you mentioned the church that I started in Fort Myers. The the, the purpose of starting the church in Fort Myers was to purposely not rely on on my grandfather's influence so i it was important to me that god i knew god i i had read in the scripture where god told jacob i'm the god of abraham the god of isaac and he he was their god they were in covenant together and what he was saying was i'll be your god and i wanted god to be my god not vicariously not riding on somebody's coattails so i didn't want anything that was passed down to affect what I was doing there in Fort Myers. So I left um, the spotlight, I left uh, the public eye, and I, I worked very hard to, to build that church, to start that church. And um, in doing that, I almost, I, I guess I, I, I developed a love for organic ministry uh, and authenticity. And it's funny because I purposely didn't use our family name for like a decade. And one time we we had we had built the church up. We had uh, managed to build it to about 100 people or so, maybe a little more. And we had, I took the kids. We had a bunch of young people, and I took them to a, a, a regional conference. And so we packed up the bus, and we had all these kids from the community that we were discipling. And I, we probably took about 30 kids up there, young adults. And when we got up to the conference— we went through the lobby and one of my young men, after we'd been there about 30 minutes, breathlessly came running up to me and he said, Pastor Urshan, Pastor Urshan, you are never going to believe this. And I said, what, what happened? I thought, you know, some kind of a, an accident had happened. He said, there is a college with your name on it. (laughs) 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 And that was their frame of reference. You know, and I, it, and then being gone those years from the public eye, I hadn't thought about it. So, I think initially, yeah, there there was a, there's a definitely a sense of responsibility. We want to we want to do our best to carry on the tradition and the legacy of our forefathers. Um, so the the short answer is yes. It was more so at the beginning. Now we're we're thankful for the heritage that has been given to us. It's a godly heritage. I think the Bible calls it a goodly heritage, and um, we hope that we can we can follow in the footsteps of great men. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, um, since, since we, we've, we've already opened it up and, and I'm interested about the story of your great grandfather. Um, I've read his biography before, but, but, uh, for those that, that aren't familiar with Andrew Urshan's story, um, can you tell us a little bit of your heritage and then we'll, we'll try and work through and, and get to, you know, the, the work you did in Fort Myers, and then the things that you have done after and, of course, where you are now in, in Durham.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Andrew Urshan was a Middle Eastern immigrant into the United States. Um, he came over early in the um, 20th century, the early, the early 1900s, and he, he was immigrating. He wanted a better life, and so he, he loved God. His father was a Presbyterian minister in the western province of Azerbaijan, Iran. Now, there's a country called Azerbaijan, and then, then there's an Azerbaijani province, which is on the western side of Iran. That's where he was from. A small town, Abajalu. Um, it's not far from Ermia, And our family is a Syrian. And he went home. He, he left the States and went back home to see his family. And during the time that he was at home they it was it was the time of world war 1 because world war I, world war 1 broke out the turks took the opportunity for the 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 pullback of rush the russian military that held them in check they took that opportunity to to ethnically and religiously cleanse the area of anybody that was not islamic and so the turks subcontracted to the kurds now these are the same kurds who the us just Partnered with to fight against ISIS in the Middle East, they're the most fierce um, fighting group over there. They're very territorial. They they would be akin to um, like the Spartans of ancient Greece. They're raised from from infancy to kill, and a good Kurd is a is a, a skilled Kurd is a good murderer. Um, actually, we have a diary from A.D. Urshan where he talks about they would take blood, the blood of their enemies, and put it in the baby's milk so that the children would learn to be bloodthirsty. And that's in his, it's in his own handwriting. And he doesn't call them Islamists. Um, he calls them Mohammedans. He calls them by their old mm-hmm. name. And so... Yeah. There in his handwriting, he talks about that. He talks about how they had to run because the Kurds would come down out of the mountains. It was a series of successive attacks, and the family would run. They would burn their house. They'd come back. They'd, they'd, they'd come back. They'd burn the house. They'd take the livestock. They'd come back. It was almost like the book of Job. And finally, a third time they did it, a third wave, they had to run because they obliterated the town. <clears throat> they ran into Russia. While he was in Russia, he preached the gospel and sowed the seeds of the Russian revival, and millions of people have come from that that revival that are Jesus' name, Holy Ghost-filled people, oneness people. Um, And from there, he then immigrated to the United States. He got to the States 1919, 1920, uh, finally, to where that was his final thing. He he was here for good. When he got here, um, he preached in Los Angeles, he preached in uh, Chicago and New York. Great grandpa he didn't do things small. He wanted he wanted to swing for the fences. Yeah. So so he's starting churches in the biggest metro areas that he could find. Um he was instrumental in the in the founding of ABI Apostolic Bible Institute, him and G. T. Haywood. And Stuart Grant Norris. People would call him S. G. Norris. A very influential <laughs> man from, from way back. A lot of UPC men can trace their their theology and their theological system back to S. G. Norris. Um. So he he planted a church in New York. He planted a church in Chicago. He was very instrumental in planting a- Amy Simple McPherson in Los Angeles, California. Um, the Four Square Gospel Church back way 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 back, and back when she still. Uh, baptized in Jesus' name and, and believed in modesty and holiness and oneness. That was before she changed. Um, so grandpa, mm-hmm. great-grandpa had a big influence on her. And so that was A.D. Urshan's life. He preached. He was very instrumental in bringing oneness apostolicism to the United States. And he was a dear friend and partner of G.T. Haywood, who is the founding influence of the Pentecostal Assemblies of the World, the PAW. Um, the PAW is older than... Uh, the UPCI, and it was a a sister organization, if you will. And so those two men were very instrumental in founding founding those groups. Um, More G.T. Haywood with the PAW. The the UPCI was founded by a group of men that came together in the mid-'40s. So then my grandpa, N.A. Urshan, he comes along, and he's raised up in that environment, and he was much more organizationally involved in the UPCI from the forties on in Calvary Tabernacle in Indianapolis, Indiana. So that's kind of a snapshot.
1: Yeah. Um, there's, there's, there's a lot there that I kind of like to dig into for a moment, but before I forget about the name G.T. Haywood, I do want to ask you, what is your favorite G.T. Haywood story?
0: Mm. Okay. <clears throat> My favorite G.T. Haywood story is probably the founding of ABI. Um, people don't know that G.T. Haywood was the founding influence of Apostolic Bible Institute (ABI), Saint Paul, Minnesota. Yeah. Um, so back in those days, they they were they believed in being spirit led, so there was a fluidity to it. Which has, you know, its pros and its cons. You know, the 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 pros are that man, powerful things happened. They moved mountains. They they started amazing churches. They had amazing miracles. The cons are they weren't always organized. They were kind of all over the place. They never had a a local concerted effort and a, an organized effort, I should say. So, you know, that's just kind of how they thought. Well, one day, G. T. Haywood is he's in Indianapolis. He's pastoring a powerful church in Indianapolis. He's a nationally known figure. The Holy Ghost began to deal with him that he was too complacent. He was too satisfied, and and he said, I I have a work for you to do. I want you to go to the train station, buy a ticket, and go north. That was it. That was was his word from God. And so he gets it in prayer, and he just gets a ticket, like an open-ended ticket, and just starts traveling. And and he thought that, and I, you know, I'm getting all this through the family lore. I don't know right. exactly how historically accurate I am, but this is what's been passed down. Um, he thinks he's going to Canada. So he just, he goes. He goes from Indianapolis and he works his way up through Chicago. He works his way up through uh, the northern states. He gets to St. Paul, Minnesota, assuming he's going to keep going forward and the Holy Ghost tells him to stop. Stop here. This is where you're going to get off. So Brother Haywood gets his bag, he gets off, and he stands there on the terminal floor. And people are hustling and bustling around him. People are greeting loved ones. Husbands are hugging wives, and military people are kissing their sweethearts, and children are excited to see relatives they haven't seen, and grandmas and grandpas are cooing over the you know, it's, it's the family scene. And then the station clears, train moves on, <clears throat> and Brother Haywood's just standing there. You know, I mean, Holy Ghost told me to come, here I am. Everybody leaves the station except one guy. And he looks at Brother Haywood, Brother Haywood looks at him, and the guy says to him, you're him, aren't you?
1: Hmm.
0: And Brother Haywood says, well, it depends, you know, Who are you looking for? And the man said, the Holy Ghost told me to come here and I'd find a man who would help us build a church in St. Paul, Minnesota. And Brother Haywood said, yes, I'm the man. And he went and he stayed with the man and his family. The man had multiple family members and Brother Haywood discipled them, baptized them in Jesus name. They got the Holy Ghost. They had been praying and seeking the face of God. They knew that God had a plan, and they needed help. And so it is literally a modern-day Cornelius moment. And he stays there for like, I think it was like six months maybe, and he was able to gather together about 25 people into that group. And and when that was done, he called his friend. He had to go back home to Indianapolis to pastor his church. His friend was an evangelist, a well-known evangelist named A.D. Urshan. And he said, Brother Urshan, I need you to come and take over this group of 25 people. Grandpa comes, and he begins to pastor this little group of 25 people that G.T. Haywood started. And this is a Persian Assyrian immigrant coming to take over the church that a black American man has founded in St. Paul on the word of the Holy Ghost. And that is where N.A. Urshan was born, was St. Paul, Minnesota. The year was 1920. And, um, so grandpa was there for a little while. I, I don't know exactly how long he was there, but he raised up the church to a hundred people or so. And finally he was ready to move on, uh, to another work. And I want to say it was, it was Chicago, if I'm not mistaken. And he called a young up and coming minister named Stuart Norris to come take over this new work in St. Paul, Minnesota. And so S.G. Norris wow. wound up. In Saint Paul, he became the founder of ABI, and that's how it started. And that is probably my my favorite GT Haywood story.
1: That's awesome, and it's just because he was sensitive enough to hear God's voice when he said "go." He went.
0: <clears throat> yeah,
1: and how important is it that we are that sensitive to God's voice today? Mm-hmm.
0: I think that I think that there's room. There's there's great benefits of organization. But like anything in the in the kingdom of God, there's a polarity to it. There's always the polarity that there's going to be a north and south pole, if you will. It's going to be one pole in the physical and one pole in the spiritual. And you've got to keep a tension between those two poles. And if you get too spiritual and you're so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good, then you can say, well, I'm not going to work a job. I'm not going to pay a mortgage. God's going to miraculously provide for me. And 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 you can miss the physical side, and and then the, uh, the other side is true. You can get so drawn to the physical that you don't do anything spiritual, and and that's a that's a, a temptation in organizations. Is you can rely on the political process, you can rely on networking, you can do all, you can push all the physical buttons, and you can lose the sensitivity to the Holy Ghost. So, it, I I think there's a polarity that we've got to strive for.
1: Absolutely. So you mentioned that your great grandfather's family were Presbyterians. Mm-hmm. Is your family as far back as you can look, have they always been some form of Christian?
0: To our knowledge, yeah. It's one of the reasons why they were they were marked for extermination um in Iran. The Islamists were, were wiping them out. So yeah, as far back as we know.
1: How many times was your great grandfather baptized?
0: You know, I don't know. Um I know of at least two. He was baptized in a Trinitarian formula. And then, and then in Russia, he got the revelation of baptism in Jesus' name when an elderly Russian man came to him and said to him, I want to be baptized the way the Bible says to baptize. And, and that's when God began to deal with his heart. And that was further solidified later when he connected with G.T. Haywood. They were coming out of a Trinitarian world view at that time. Uh, particularly my, great, my great-grandfather. And so if you read some of his early writings in his early books, he has a lot of Trinitarian terminology that he still utilized in his early books because uh, he was coming from that world. And it wasn't until he became more solidified in a, a monotheistic, a true monotheism, that he began to realize the error of that. So I to answer your question, I know of at least the two times.
1: I know that... Uh... The reason why I ask is because one of the stories that I think that I've heard, and I'm not pausing on this, is that he was baptized in the Brethren Church, and I think they actually baptized, in, baptized three times. And the only reason why I was asked is I was thinking that he was baptized there from what I had known and was baptized in the Presbyterian Church. I mean, he, he got baptized quite a few times by the time he was baptized in Jesus' name.
0: That's very possible, but, uh,
1: yeah. Um, you Obviously, the, the Jesus' name message— has been instrumental in your family. In fact, I think I just recently saw you put a, your, you did a, a, uh, answering Trinitarian questions on your YouTube page. I haven't had a chance to watch the video yet, but I do want to ask you, um, making the message your own. Uh, how important is it to you? How um, I've listened to you preach several sermons, and it seems like there's, it, it reoccurs that the message of being baptized in Jesus' name, the oneness of God, for you. Uh, how important is it to you to hold on to the absolute monotheism of Christianity?
0: Well, it's paramount. It has been drilled into us from our earliest memories. Um, Our grandfather, Nathaniel A. Urshan, he tells the story of he he was a— Young, successful pastor at Calvary Tabernacle, and this was during his 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 prime It would have been the fifties and sixties. Grandpa was powerfully used of God um the church had emerged from the latter rain movement, and the pastor previous to my grandfather, Brother Hukstra, had followed the latter rain movement and had had compromised and it was a great scandal. It was a big church split. Calvary was a powerful church, and, and, but the Huckster was a powerful charismatic leader. So Grandpa was a young man coming in. He was not N.A. Urshan, the general superintendent. He was young Nathaniel coming into a metro area following an extremely charismatic leader. And so as time goes on, God gave him dominion. There's a lot of great testimonies there, but, but he became successful. And as he grew in success, he was preaching. He was being used of God, there were great revivals happening, and his style of preaching, great-grandpa felt like he was not putting enough emphasis on Jesus' name. So one day he paid a visit to grandpa, and he, he, he met him at the office, and he said, Nathaniel, you're not exalting Jesus enough. Everything you do in word or deed, you need to do it all in the name of Jesus and he said so every message should be preached in Jesus name. Jesus should be exalted. He is the preeminent revelation. He's the express image of the invisible God in all things he has preeminence. So Grandpa, you know, he he would take that scripture literally. He would get in the car in Jesus name. He would say in Jesus name. He would eat his food in Jesus name. He'd put on his jacket in Jesus name. Whatever you do in word or deed, you do it all in the name of yeah. Jesus. <laughs> so that was drilled into Grandpa, and then he drilled that into his son, Nathaniel, and Andrew, his two sons, and then they in turn put that in us. So if you stop preaching it, then it goes by the wayside, and um, and then you love it. At the end of the day, you're in love with the Jesus name message, and we are. If you hear my brother preach, if you hear me preach or our family, we're going to exalt the name of Jesus throughout and that's what i plan on doing when i get to heaven so i might as well start down here
1: <laughs> exactly has there ever been a time in your life where you questioned the the truth that was given to you and if, and if so how did you how did you navigate through that how did you hold on to your faith
0: <clears throat> yeah yeah absolutely i think every person that is honest about their quest and their growing in god they've had to they've had challenges to their faith and I'm no exception to that. Uh, the first time was probably when my brother and I, Joel and I, were were young and we were dealing with. Um, there was a family across the street from us who were Mormons, and they had a couple young men in there that were our friends. We'd play ball with them, we'd wrestle with them, and you know run around with them. They were they were good friends, and inevitably we began to talk about faith. Well. They obviously didn't believe the Jesus name message, and we did, and we were very, very zealous. So we started preaching to them, and the parents would come in, and we'd be preaching to those young men, and they did not know their faith like we knew our faith. And So the parents began to push back against it, and it forced Joel and I to dig into the scriptures at 11, 12, 13, and 14 years of age. And, and one day they brought in missionaries to combat what we were doing because their their sons were believing this message. And they did. The, the boy, those boys bound up being baptized in Jesus' name, and they received the Holy Ghost. And, and that was Joel and I's first collaboration, our missional collaborating together. And, and so from that earliest moment, I can remember being told that Baptism in Jesus' name was not essential. Um, we baptize according to Matthew twenty-eight, nineteen. What do you think about that? And, and it, that pushback made us go dig into the scriptures. So we fell in love with the Book of Acts, the historical narrative of Acts, and we. we so at that very young, impressionable age, later on, as a young minister, I, I had debates with very intelligent people, Church of Christ ministers. One in particular really challenged me, and he shook me. me
1: too.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. They're they're smart guys. They're very intelligent guys, and they do their research. Uh,
1: I had seven of them at one time at our church that uh, they, that had all come to
0: try and disprove the miraculous gift. Yeah, they'll do it. They'll do it. We spent a lot of time, and I was probably in my twenties then. And when he found out I was Nathaniel Urshan's grandson, he 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 almost flipped out. He couldn't believe it. Because <clears throat> they view us as a they view us as a cult. And oh, yeah. so man, he and I went round and round and and he challenged me. He he's the one who probably pushed me to dig into Greek and Hebrew more than anybody else. And when I did, I became more convinced than ever that that the doctrine was true. I fell in love with it. Okay, so that's That's just from a mental awareness, and there's a lot of people that grapple with that, but there's one area that's bigger than that that I think is crucial, and I think it's missing in a lot of young ministers' lives. Experientially, when you practice it, when you put it into practice and God meets you and supernaturally validates what you're doing, it does more than any debate, any um, discussion, any mental curiosity or exploration could ever do The experiential activity I mean at my at my home in Fort Myers we baptized over 500 people in Jesus name in our swimming pool. We run the wow. carpet in my living room baptizing people <laughs> in Jesus name. I baptized him in the Gulf of Mexico. <laughs> Yeah, it, it, that, the experiential dynamic cannot be overestimated because I watched God show up, I watched lives change, and I watched the consecration that emerged from that. So I, I think people overlook the experiential nature that, that solidifies it in a person's heart.
1: Absolutely. Uh, uh, tying in that uh, what you just said in a, some of the conversation we had, we had uh, can you tell us something, and I know I'm asking this off the top of your head, some of the miracles that your family experienced, like I'm thinking of about uh, stories about your father, your grandfather, great grandfather baptizing people in Russia in the high. But God was working miracles, even even at those baptisms. And, and I'm just curious, what are some of the experiences that you and or your family have had?
0: There are some very famous moments. Um, and these are formative moments conversations that that shaped us, that formed us. One of them, you know, you mentioned baptizing people in the ice. So in Russia, they literally broke the ice. <laughs> the original icebreaker. <laughs> um, yeah, exactly. So great-grandpa just breaks the ice, he baptizes them. And there's a story of these Russian women worshiping God, and they begin to shout and glorify God. Um, This would have been around the time of the overthrow of the czars before communism really, really took root, before the Soviet Union was really being formed. And so there was a lot more freedom among the people. And they baptized this group of Russian women. And the story is that as they worshiped and glorified God, they rose up out of the water and they danced on top of the water. And Grandpa told us that story, passed down from his father. Um, One of the most famous is while he was in Russia, the the local authorities commanded him to stop preaching in Jesus' name. They viewed it as divisive. They viewed it as um, being a a malcontent and someone who was stirring up strife in in a politically volatile time. And so they, they, the authorities caught him preaching in Jesus' name. They told him to stop. Now, if you've ever been over there, um, there's a lot of dialects that, that are over there in, in that region. So I actually preached over there in one of those churches in, in the city of Tallinn in Estonia. It's former Soviet Union, but it was under Russian control. So there's two language groups there. There was Estonian which the native spoke and then there was Russian, which was, you know, they were colonizing Estonia. So they forced the Russian language on them. So when I preached over there, I would preach in English. They would interpret it into Russian and then another Russian interpreter would interpret it into Estonian. So we had to interpret from English to Russian and then a second interpreter had to go from Russian to Estonian. (laughs) The message took forever to preach. Very awkward message, but, but God honored it. Thank God. So those people were listening to Andrew Urshan's words. He was creating a problem for the local authorities. He's preaching these different cultures, language, and people groups. And he didn't speak the language, so he had to have an interpreter. So he would speak in his original uh, Middle Eastern tongue, and they would interpret into Russian and and then— they, the people would obey so <clears throat> they they warn him stop preaching he won't he goes they they release him he goes right back out and starts preaching again they find out they catch him they warn him again they warn him two or three times finally they said if you do it again it will be a capital offense it is treasonous and you'll face a firing squad you know this is Early 1900s. This is back when men were being drawn and quartered with horses. This is back when you know Cossacks and Kurds and and Turkmen, uh, Mohammedans and and, and uh, you know ancient Russia here. So turn of the century Russia during the Bolshevik Revolution. So this is a chaotic time. Well, he goes right back out and just keeps on preaching. They catch him doing it, and they arrested him. They put him in front of a wall. And they line up men in front of him with guns. They blindfold him. And they asked him, do you have any last words? And he said, yes, I want to pray. Allow me to pray. They said, okay, we'll give you a moment to pray, make your peace with God, and then we're going to kill you. So grandpa started praying. And he prayed, and he prayed, and I imagine you'd pray too (laughs) if you were in that kind of position. And as he's praying, he starts speaking in tongues. And he gets lost in the Holy Ghost, and for, I don't know, 30 minutes, he prays and calls on the name of God. And just talks in tongues, worships God with abandon. And when he gets done, he braces himself for the impact of the bullets. And they never come. He, there's no shot fired. So he lifts his bandana and they're all gone. The soldiers are gone. And he looks to the interpreter to you know question what happened and the interpreter said, I thought you told me you didn't speak Russian. And he said, I don't. I don't speak Russian. He said, well, you just did speak Russian and you told these soldiers that if they touched the prophet, the angel of the Lord stood ready to kill them and they were They were to release you and let you go, so they're gone <laughs> so these are the a d. Urshan stories that were very, very formative to us growing up. They were our our lore, our legacy
1: that is awesome um, I think that I lost the recording there, so you guys are recording those, right? Yes, we are. Okay. Well, then I'll, I may just need to get a copy from you, and we can switch over on audio. This is one of the things that I, you can you see me on camera still.
0: Um. No, I don't see you on camera. I see you. I just see a phone icon.
1: Okay. Well, either way, I mean, as long as there's at least there's a backup. This person I ran into this, but uh, anyway. So sorry to all the listeners out there to hear if you hear uh, some of this. Uh, technical stuff that we've got going on. But um, that, that is incredible, that, that that story. I've heard that one before, of, of the firing squad, and, and uh, that, to me, that's just, it, it's like a Book of Acts miracle, which it shouldn't be surprising, because we are a continuation of the Book of Acts church. Um, so so now, um, kind of looking forward from there, um, to your to your grandfather for a little while now, um uh, your grandfather, of course, was the superintendent of the United Pentecostal Church. Uh, what, would, what was he like a, as a minister? Uh, he's not an individual that I ever uh, was privileged to meet. I was never in a service with him there, and I can't remember when it was that he had passed. But uh, what was your grandfather like?
0: Grandpa Urshan was one of the most fascinating men. I, 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 I probably couldn't appreciate it like I would now at my age I am now, and I was young. He died in 05, so I think I was 29 years old. He, He was so charismatic. He was a great people person. He never forgot people's names. To this day, people are amazed that he would meet them one time, and he would remember their name decades later. So He was very good with people's names. He was a great connector. So he had an innate ability as a leader to embrace diplomacy. And he could grab the left side of Pentecost and the right side of Pentecost, and he could bring them both to the table. He was a great mediator. He could bridge the gap. He could could connect them. He loved those men. So he had far-right conservative guys who did not agree with everything he stood for, but they loved him. And they knew he was a man of the word, and then he had far left guys who were very liberal in their interpretation of scripture who loved him as well and he went way back with a lot of them and with their fathers and he just had a lot of legacy so as a leader he was that was a time in Pentecost in particular the UPC when there were statesmen they were very august statesmen they 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 represented themselves so well. They were not politicians, they were more diplomats, and they didn't play games, they built powerful churches, but they were also able to to connect people and to love people, and they were very authentic, very unique individuals, each of them. Grandpa was part of that group. Now as a preacher, he was unrivaled in in his approach to to preaching, most po- most folks that I know, my age and maybe a little older, they know him as the older man in the '90s and early 2000s, and when he had, he really was not in his, the the prime of his life and the strength of his life. If you heard him preach in the 1950s and 60s and the 70s, that was his prime. And if you can ever get your hands on an N. A. Urshan message from that time. It is well worth listening to it. I mean, it'll raise the hair on the back of your neck. He would get into a delivery and a flow of preaching the word of God. And he had this way of, of just articulating so clearly. He was a a very powerful expository preacher where he just went down the line and man, when he got on a roll, it would levitate you. And that was the in a Urshan that they elected to the general superintendency. He was the pastor of the Lighthouse Church, Calvary Tabernacle. It was it was a dynamic force in Pentecost at that time, and he was just probably the most powerful man I've ever known.
1: Um, can I ask you to to tell us the story of your grandfather? Finding
0: his mother again mm. absolutely. yeah <sighs> yeah, this <clears throat> this is a part of of his legacy that you know a lot of folks don't know. Grandpa it, to, I don't mean to lionize him or to to paint him you know in some kind of a, a fantasy way, a fantastic way he was a human being. He had, he had flaws. He had great flaws. He was, he was a human like anybody. And one of the things that he, he probably struggled with was he could be very abrupt. He could be very um, authoritative. Not that that's a negative, but, but the people that that was happening with didn't always appreciate it. (laughs) He was famous for his, Yeah. yeah, he was famous for his strength in board meetings. And as a leader, he, he didn't care who you were. If he felt like you were out of order, he was he was gonna he was gonna deal with it. And 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 while that might rub some in the wrong way, people loved him for it because he was decisive. Um, but if you knew him personally, he could hold you at arm's length. He didn't want you to get too close, and people don't know where that hesitance to to personally connect came from, and it came from his childhood when he was very very young. His mother and his father, my great grandfather Andrew Urshan, they their marriage fell apart. They divorced, and uh, you know there's a lot of reasons for why they divorced. One reason is he was an immigrant, and he thought like an immigrant. There was a third world mindset dynamic that he did have. He was very rigid. He was very strong, and you know. To marry and to love, particularly in America, the United States, a girl raised in the United States, when she encounters that from a Middle Eastern context, it's not the most culturally harmonious union. So he's coming at it from that very male-dominated perspective. She's coming at it from more of a United States perspective. Um, In that culture, women walked six steps behind the men, even in my grandpa's house. Uh, at at holidays, the men would sit at one end of the table, and the women would sit at the other end of the table. And um, <laughs> tried to talk my wife into that, but that wasn't going to fly in our house. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding. Um, right. So that was one thing. The other thing is, great grandpa traveled extensively, and he he made the mistake that a lot of men make. Um, the work of God is paramount, and and We've got to do that above all else. Well, over the years, we have learned that that is not the best way to approach ministry. Family is the work of God. And I have a duty to bring my wife and my children along with me as I'm trying to save the world. Well, he thought he was doing that, but he would leave his family for long periods of time. He would travel the world. He was very very famous during that time. And here she is at home by herself raising children. One of them was handicapped. And she had this weight on her. And um, I, I think they were living in New York City at the time. Well, he had an evangelist come in and who would take care of the church for him. And um, over time, as that man preached, he became very beloved in the church and, and the family loved him. He counted him a dear friend. Well, left alone, his wife and that evangelist, they formed a relationship over the months and years, Grandpa was gone. She was lonely, and she ran off with him. And she left her family to run off with this man. Uh, Grandpa tried very hard to talk her out of it, but she felt like she loved him. She felt like great-grandpa did not love her, that he was always going to be gone. She was tired of it. She was done with it. Life was too hard, and she, she left She also wrestled with a lot of, um, they say she wrestled with like a chemical imbalance. So she could be, she could get very depressed. She could get very down. This man saw that, saw an opportunity to, to connect with her. And I don't know, maybe he thought he loved her. I don't know what his thinking was at any rate, the marriage fell apart. She runs off with him and leaves my grandfather at a very, very young age. It was very traumatic on him very difficult it devastated him as a young man and it formed this hardness in him and you know folks don't know this but but grandpa did not he did not serve the lord with all of his heart during that time you know he was out running the streets with his friends he'd come in late at night after running around and and drinking and he would have been in his late teens by that time he was he was trying to become a a minor league pitcher, uh, for a professional baseball team. (laughs) So and there's a lot of stories. I don't want to go down rabbit trails. Basically after having been estranged from her for, for several years, she wanted to come back and see the kids. Grandpa by this time is 18 years old. He's young. He is angry He's an angry young man. He's in the prime of his young strength. And she knocks on the door. Of the family home. And great grandpa. Or I'm sorry. Grandpa N.A. Opens the door. And he sees his mom. For the first time in years. And he has developed an anger and a bitterness. Towards her. And he calls her a name. And. And. Great-grandpa spun him around, and he slapped him, and he rebuked him for speaking to his mother that way. And he brought her in to the house, and he sat her down, and he gave her something to drink. He allowed the children to come around. Well, while he was attending to his ex-wife and being kind to her, grandpa looks down at the at the street and sees a man sitting there in a car idling. And it was the man she ran off with. He had brought her by to see the family. So the 18-year-old, angry, bitter young man sees the man who broke up his, his family's home, took his mom, and all reason went out the window. He ran, down, he ran down the sidewalk. He ran to the car, pulled the man out of the car, and began to, to assault him. He punched him. They were fighting out there, and Grandpa wanted to kill him. This, this was the man who caused me such pain. This was the man. And the man was bloodied. Grandpa was just beside himself. They pulled him off, and it was a terrible moment, terrible scene. Um, and as they left, the man told his mother, I'll kill your son if I ever see him again. You're never to go around him again. I'll get a shotgun, and I'll kill him. And so she disappeared. They had almost no contact with her ever again. Um, well, I should say for many, wow. many, many years. <clears throat> so Grandpa grows. I mean, there's there's a lot of stories there. He got tuberculosis. God had to miraculously heal him. Um, and <laughs> one of the things that's, this is how serious our family is about this. You know, he's he's out drinking. He's out staying out all night carousing with his friends. He's angry, he's acting out, and he does not want to be a preacher. He's going to be a professional athlete, and he's not going to be like his dad. Well, he contracted tuberculosis. This would have been in the late 30s, which by that time, World War II is happening, uh, or rather getting ready to happen, I should say. Hitler's on the rise, and and the metro areas were in a a boom, and he's out living a big life. And... Tuberculosis was like a death sentence. And he went from 210 pounds down to like 140 pounds in the hospital. And um, while he was living that life, great-grandpa, he'd come in and pass out on on the bed at night. And he'd come in at 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock in the morning. And great-grandpa would come in and find him passed out on the bed. Great-grandpa would lay across his legs and pray over him and say, God, save my son. Deliver my son break break the sinful hold that's on his heart. And then he would say, if he doesn't, God deliver him, fill him with your spirit, and then kill him.
1: <laughs> huh. That's a pretty serious
0: prayer. He prayed it, man. And and then he contracts tuberculosis. And so oh. so man, grandpa was afraid of AD's prayers and So he's in the hospital, he's dying. And great grandpa walks in and says to him, where will you run now, Jonah? Wow. And when he left the room, grandpa turned his back and he prayed. He said, God, if you'll heal me, I'll repent. I'll live for you. I'll give my life to you. And I think he was probably 20 years of age about that time if not maybe a little younger and god touched him and he began to gain weight from that day forward and god healed him of tuberculosis he left that lifestyle he left those friends he began to submit himself to my great grandfather he he got involved with the local ministry there he began to preach he began to sing and he became the preacher that people know and love today um he becomes the pastor pastor of Calvary Tabernacle he grows you know he he develops a family he he becomes in a urchin. Well, well, by this time he's now, you know, decades have passed. He is, he's the pastor of, uh, the largest church in the United States at that time, uh, in, in Pentecost and in oneness Pentecost, I should say. And God begins to deal with his heart because he had, he still had this anger in him towards his mother. He would not connect with her. He would not reach out to her. She was as good as dead to him. He was so angry and God began to deal with his heart. This isn't right. Life is more complex than that. And, and you need to be a man of God about it. So in prayer, God dealt with him and as time passed, he began to soften in his heart towards his mom. And finally he can't handle it anymore. Um, He hires a private investigator and and his sisters helped they helped through some correspondence and <clears throat> together they all tracked her down to the northwest i want to say it was seattle that they found her but it was it was the northwest and the man she'd run off with had long ago died she was now elderly she was probably in her 80s and grandpa would have been in his 50s or 60s um she is living in a run down assisted living tenement kind of a facility and she's on a little fixed income. She's very, she's dirt poor living in poverty and they track her down there. They said, Reverend Urshan, we found her. So grandpa hasn't seen her in decades. So he, he gets on a plane. Now, now he is successful. He is, he's a great leader in Pentecost. He, he, is greatly used all over the world and, and he's going to find his mom to see if he can't connect in some way. And he gets there. He, he goes to the address and it is a pitiful, dilapidated, run-down place. He goes up there and he, he's thinking this can't be it. This can't be the place. My mom can't live here. He In his mind, he always saw her as defiant and abandoning them and living this big life and running off with this smooth talker. And he found that it was very, very humble surroundings that she was living in, very, very poverty-stricken. He goes to the front desk, and the guy at the front desk said, yeah, I, I know Miss Hammigren. She She lives here. She's out right now, but she'll be back shortly. She always goes out about this time of day, and if you just wait here in the lobby, she'll be back shortly. He said, okay. And so he sits down. He, you know, he's, got a, he's got a top hat on. He's got a hat. He's got a, a trench coat. He's got, you know, he's, he's, he's in the prime of life. And he's waiting on his mother to come back. And, and while they're there waiting, the man at the desk says, hey, let me ask you something about, about that lady. She's been here for many years. Nobody ever comes to see her. You're the first person in years that's come to see her. She's alone. Every holiday, she's alone. Um, she does the same thing every day. She just lives here. She collects this little check, barely makes ends meet. And the only thing about her is, there's a radio here that she'll come down and she'll sit in a rocking chair over there and she'll she'll listen to a radio preacher and she'll rock in that chair and she'll just cry and cry as she listens to him preach wow. and when it hit him that she was listening to him he was the preacher of harvest time he was right. he was preaching a national pentecostal program when he realized that she was crying about her baby that she had abandoned and had no way to reach the holy ghost smote him there in that lobby he wept he repented he asked god to forgive him for his hardness of heart and for and for not being sensitive to the holy ghost and having compassion on a weak woman and she came she came in right about then and when she saw him and he saw her they reconciled she couldn't believe her eyes she couldn't believe what she was seeing. um they wept. They had a you know a reunion right there in the lobby, and Grandpa took care of her for the rest of her life after that. He made sure she was taken care of, and they reconciled. That's that's the story of his mom. Wow, that
1: uh, that is on on many different ways. That's a very gripping story. Um, so, uh, let me ask you this: where where all has your your dad your at?
0: Okay. My father is Nathaniel Paul Urshan, and he, he's one of the greatest preachers you'll ever hear. He put a, a love for the things of God down inside of myself, my brother, and my sister, and, the, and, our, and our children, our grandkids, and now we got great grandkids. Um, he loves the things of God. He <clears throat> originally pastored in Memphis, Tennessee, So it would have been, I think. Is that the
1: church that's now Grace Life?
0: Yes. Yes. Okay. My father pastored the church that's now Grace Life. Um, It was the Pentecostals of Memphis. Um, The Pentecostal church, TPC. Um, Terry Black followed him. And dad took that church in the early 70s, a couple years before I was born. So I think it was around 74 Dad took that church. It was a very small church. It had been established a long time. as an old church. Um, but it had fallen on hard times. They had 15 people or so. And they had this little bitty building they were in. Dad took that group. And he grew it to about four or 500 people. And um, bought a nice five-acre spread on, on a main thoroughfare. and And he pastored there for, I believe it was nine years, if I'm not mistaken. And... He left there and moved to Indianapolis. So did
1: he build the building they're in now?
0: No, no. Dad, okay. Dad built a building on Airways Boulevard, and okay. he he built. This is kind of a neat story. There, it's right next to the Memphis Airport, <clears throat> and Memphis is okay. the uh, national hub of FedEx, and so. Mm-hmm. Before FedEx was there, or it wasn't as expansive as it was, they bought this acreage. Well, they were in there for several years, and FedEx came knocking and and bought them out for millions of dollars. And so, oh wow, yeah, that church is the reason why that they could build that church later on, and they uh, Terry Black built that church.
1: Okay, see, like I said, I didn't know how long that structure had been there.
0: Yeah, I think – I want to say they might have built that in the late 80s. Um, I'm not sure exactly when the, when the newer – You were born
1: whenever he was in Memphis, right?
0: Yeah, I was born in 76, Memphis, Baptist Hospital. Um, what
1: was it like for you coming back to Memphis?
0: Man, <laughs> you know, my dad had a lot of difficulty in Memphis. There was a very – um a corrupt church atmosphere in Memphis at that time. A lot of, it it was a lot of board-run churches where they like to give Mm -hmm. pastors a very hard time and a lot of corrupt politics in Tennessee at that time. And so it was a very tumultuous time. It It was probably the darkest time of my dad's life. He didn't want to leave Memphis. It was a very difficult time but under my grandfather's direction he he said it's going to be best if you leave that that church is is got some very dif- great difficulties and the parkies who pastor there now they had to face that they had to face a lot of those difficulties right. and they overcame it god gave them grace and the parkies are doing a great job they're great people um but some of the corrupt board dynamics there people that were there that were very strong-willed people it was like this business mindset where uh, powerful, wealthy people thought they could control the pulpit and control churches, and those people they right. they tried to politically damage my dad. So that was the environment we grew up in. When I came back to Memphis, it was I was there for, I lived there for four years, and I pastored there for two and a half years. You know, later on, um, it was surreal. I mean, this is the I, I remember it from my early formative years, and it was almost like you know the pastor there, Bishop James Sandy. Uh, in South Haven, Mississippi, uh, one of the greatest men you'll ever meet. He invited us to come there, and it was almost like God was closing a chapter for my family. It was like God was saying, you know what, I'm going to give you a chance to go home and set some things right and to, to plant something in the ground that's going to be powerful and wonderful, and in a way, it's going to give you closure and healing uh, and your family So my dad got to come down and preach, and and my my mom got to, and and my brother preached there, and my sister got to come spend time with us. It was a great time. It was a wonderful time. And God really did some powerful things and is still doing some powerful things there in that area.
1: Awesome. So uh, I got you you sidetracked. Anyway, you were saying that your dad, after he was at Memphis, where did he go?
0: Yeah, so after Memphis dad moved to Indianapolis for a couple of years and evangelized. And that would have been from about 85 to 87. So we lived in Indianapolis. And then a little town named Kokomo had a had a church. They needed a pastor and they called my dad. They actually voted my dad in as the pastor, and he didn't know it. (laughs) (laughs) They had an election. Yeah, he had gone up and preached for them, and and it was kind of a small group, and they were kind of struggling, and they needed a pastor, and and dad loved Indiana. That's where he's from. And so he wound up going there. And the years that we lived in Kokomo were probably the best years of my life. And my brother and my sister and my family, they were very healing years, very, um, it was like this little idyllic quaint town that that just was wonderful. And it, to this day, it is our most fond memories. We love that church. We love those people. They are some of the best people on earth. And, and so we have this, you know, we're born in the South, but we were raised with Midwestern values and a Midwestern mindset. So dad pastored there. <clears throat> he pastored there for um, about 20 years. And then he started a daughter work down in Indianapolis, and he has pastored on the west side of Indianapolis for the last uh, more than a decade now.
1: Okay. I guess I didn't know know that. I thought he was just in Kokomo.
0: No, he resigned the church in Kokomo. I can't remember. The the years get away from me. That means you're getting old. (laughs) Um, But he resigned the church in Kokomo, and he moved— there was a time period where he was pastoring both. He was pastoring in Kokomo and starting the church in on the west side of Indy. And and then finally, after a few years of doing that, he resigned in Kokomo and he moved to west Indianapolis, uh, Mooresville, Indiana, and he pastors the church there now. And they've done a good job. They've done a great job
1: there on the west side. Awesome. I can only imagine what it's like you know, you said the best years of life living in Kokomo because I can't hardly say the name of the town without smiling. I don't know why, but it's just a funny name to me. Yeah, and so uh, it brings me a little bit of joy just hearing that name. Yeah, but uh, the Beach Boys. I, I am curious. <laughs> Do I know?
0: Most people identify it with the Beach Boys, the song Kokomo.
1: <laughs> oh, see, I'm holiness. I don't know anything about that. <laughs> uh, <so>. Yes, sir. <laughs> uh, anyway, so. Uh, <laughs> Uh, Now, now I got to get back to something spiritual to say something like that. Yeah,
0: that's Um, right, that's right.
1: So, for you, you've been in a a couple of different places yourself, and and what I'm about to ask, it it, it's probably going to be, I I don't know, I'm interested in your input on this. You were in Fort Myers Mm -hmm. in a church that you started. Yep. You uh, did some mission work, then you came to South Haven and were at at Christian Heritage an established church, and now you're in Durham, it's an established church. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know much about North Carolina, but obviously Memphis is just less than an hour from where I'm at. So I'm, I'm very familiar with Memphis. Yeah. So the question came to mind, what, what city is, was it harder to pastor, Fort Myers or Memphis? Now, I know the context was different because one was an established church and the other one was a, was a work, but I'm I'm interested about the spiritual climate of the city. Which was more difficult?
0: That's a very good question. I would have to say, as you point out, there are differences, but which one was harder between Fort Myers and... I actually pastored in South Haven, Mississippi, which is Memphis Metro. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: I would have to say that it was probably a little tougher for me to pastor in South Haven. um, Mm. Because I founded the church in Fort Myers. And now that had its challenges, starting a church. And it's hard to answer the question because it's hard in different ways. So the hardship in Fort Myers was financial because we were always it was a home missions church we started it from nothing we did not have a seed group of people we did not have a lot of support and so when you start from the ground up like that you're digging it out of nothing it's hard to build the culture it's hard to even get people and so we we dealt with a lot of caribbean dynamics there, people from the islands, a lot of people from Haiti and Jamaica, Puerto Rico, Cuba. There were Americans as well, but it was heavily influenced by the, the Caribbean region and where our church was located. But we had great revival and I was the founder. So when people were one to God, they were one with me as their spiritual father. So the hardest thing there was financial dynamics, paying for stuff, paying for a building. People have no clue how hard it is to pay off a commercial building and to become debt free. It is one of the largest undertakings, and it's getting harder the more expensive it is to live. Um, so it had its own set of challenges there. When I came to South Haven, Mississippi, it was harder for me in the sense that um, it was a little bit of a stretch culturally for me, because I'm more of a urban guy, i'm I'm actually a very conflicted guy. I like hunting, I like fishing, I like nature, but I also like the city so it's it's a weird mix, man <laughs> but I understand. I'm very comfortable in black culture, in Caribbean culture, in hispanic culture and and white culture white typical white America, but southern culture was was more of a stretch for me um, now, I can blend in with different cultures. I'm self-aware enough to to stretch, but th- that was a stretch. Um, and I think the people there, and you won't find better people than the people in South Haven, Mississippi. They are the salt of the earth. I cannot say enough good about them. And I'm just thankful they put up with me with all my big ideas and, and urban ideas. Um, but I'm coming from an up-tempo, black gospel background high energy into a Southern dynamic that is more Southern gospel that has more of a country feel to it, which has a charm and and a love and a, a sense of community that was so great and is so great. They are, that is a powerful church, but it was a stretch for me personally because I didn't fully identify with that. So that was a challenge. And that while I struggled to connect, I also loved it because I mean there's just something about taking your time and sitting down and having a coffee and 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 a country dynamic it, it there's a charm to it it's probably not my native Jordan way Yeah man I probably gained 20 pounds in South Haven those are good cooks There's a there's a there's a lady yeah, in that surprise. church There's a lady in that church named Sister Kitty <clears throat> Sister Kitty if you're watching this I love you and Sister Urshan loves you and we miss you um, even today in Durham, she'll send me packages of cookies. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. So that's a challenge. But a bigger challenge than that was Memphis itself. the The racial tension in Memphis between the white culture and the black culture was much more polarizing. Now, I dealt with different cultural dynamics in Florida. It was... I mean, it's a cultural breeding ground. You don't get more diverse than Florida. But exactly, I think that because of slavery and because of civil rights and so many different dynamics, there's just a hardness there that I had not encountered before. And it's a spiritual giant that has to be tackled. Um, so probably those two reasons, that's why I say it was a little tougher for me there.
1: Well, that makes sense. I mean, you gotta think that's the city where Martin Luther King was assassinated in. Oh yeah, and uh, all all these different things. I mean, uh, even though we're fifty years removed, I mean, there's a lot of those attitudes don't go away.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's exactly um, right.
1: When, when, when you went to 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 Fort Myers, uh, how old were you when you went to Fort Myers?
0: I was twenty two. And
1: if it was your choice, if it was up to you, if God asked you, when do you want to go, would you go, have gone again at 22 or would you have wanted to wait a little while?
0: I would have waited a little while. I I didn't know much when I went there. I was full of energy and, and I thought I knew quite a bit. (laughs) Um, life has a way of bringing you to reality and it did. I I learned in the school of hard knocks in a lot of ways. <clears throat> I would I would have waited a little bit. You know, we had one child and um he was 10 months old at the time and we had our second child, you know, shortly after that, 3 years after we started the church. So here I was in this city with a a new wife and two newborn children. That's tough enough. Um right. And I was young. And because of that, I had a, a naivete that actually, um, it wound up being a complication later on because I, you mean, I trusted people and I, 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 didn't have the life experience just yet that I could have had. So looking back on it to answer your question, um, yeah, I probably would have done well to wait a little while. However, you know, there's something to be said for getting in and getting going. So I'm a little conflicted about it because they were the best years of my life um, ministerially. That was the, the halcyon days. Those were the, the golden years, so to speak.
1: So, When you reflect on your time there, what is a golden moment to you from that time?
0: Oh, wow, there's so many. Um, a golden moment would probably be when we closed on our new church building and we were able to buy a $1.2 million building after having rented, rented uh, in a Kiwanis club for seven years, we were able to cobble together enough money to, to come up with a down payment. And then God miraculously gave us $120,000, um, which was huge for us to some people that might not be a big deal it was a big deal to me and sure. you know we 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 were able to build the church up to about 200 people in that 7 year time period and these were all first generation people we were crazy we were in love with Jesus we were raw in terms of how we approached ministry but it was a good group and when we got in that new building and we had a future expansion in mind that was probably one of the most exciting moments there Um, I mean, I could take you to the first time I baptized somebody that I actually did it myself without the assistance of family and, and an existing church environment, just this raw environment that was, those were, that was a huge moment. Um, and then, you know, the birth of my, my sons and there's just a many, many different moments I could point to, but those are probably some of the ones that stand out the most.
1: Wow. So the first time that I, I heard a sermon of yours, you uh, were preaching at a conference in Baton Rouge, or I think it's Baton Rouge, where the spells are.
0: Yeah, Baton Rouge, And yeah. I think it
1: was a conference with, with Merrill Cornwell. Yeah. And so I don't know how many years ago that would have been. But so that was the first sermon of yours that i had heard. That was the first time I'd, I'd heard you preach. And after that, I started, actually I downloaded a year's worth of the church at Fort Myers sermons, and I listened <laughs> to an entire sermon year of yours. because oh uh, I, I just, I enjoyed the way that you taught. I enjoyed the way that you preached. And so I would listen to it whenever I was able to at work on podcasts. Um, from the time that I first, heard you preach, it seems as though I've seen your name everywhere. Um, Maybe you've preached at all these conferences and camp meetings. Has it basically from the beginning of your ministry, have you been that in demand, and I just was ignorant of it? Or is it something that all of a sudden, it's almost like the stock market where your stock price (laughs) just went through the roof?
0: (laughs) Well, (laughs) um, you know, Uh, No, the answer to your question is no, it has not been in demand like that. I, um, my brother Joel is very known for his preaching. He has been at a level of preaching since he was in his teens. And he's one of the greatest preachers I know. He's my favorite preacher. And so he, from the beginning, probably was like that. People knew him and he was greatly used and still is greatly used. Uh, By God, I left the UPC Spotlight when I was 22, and I I started the church, and I did not go to conferences or preach hardly anything for 10 years. And the reason is I was knocking doors. I was teaching Bible studies. I was teaching 10, 20, 20 sometimes 30 Bible studies a week to the point where I had to stop teaching them individually and I had to start teaching them collectively in groups. And so my ministry, I cut my teeth on home Bible studies. And that's where my zeal for that came from. I know the power that they wield and and Pastor Randy Williams, who pastors in Fort Myers now, he's doing a great job. He's a great, a great preacher and a great worshiper, a great leader. <clears throat> He is now continuing that and it's, it's, it's amazing. It is a great joy of mine to see it. Um. After 10 years, our church, we probably were, I don't know. We probably had 250 people in our church. They were all brand new. People needed to get married. People needed to connect. And so we began to reach out to people that were, similar-minded to us. And we began to reach out to conservative Pentecost. We were conservative people. We liked the people that ran in conservative circles. And so I, I reached out to um, people that were independent conservatives and WPF people and conservative UPC. And we began to fellowship with them. And I kind of left that exile of the, that 10 to 11 years where I did nothing but walk the streets and build the church. So it's almost like I just popped up one day and here's this church of two hundred and fifty people in South Florida that nobody knew that had forgotten I was there. And I, I didn't mean to do that, it just how it happened.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And um I preached for Miles Young in Sacramento. Um and then I preached for Tony Spell. I, I I became acquainted with Tony Spell. He became a good friend of mine. He still is a good friend of mine. And um that's when you heard me in Baton Rouge. That's when I began to come out. And I, I had a very conflicted relationship with politics when I was young. I I saw a lot of politics, um, from a negative view uh, growing up. So I didn't want anything to do with that. And I kind of associated that with conferences and I just wanted to do something organic. I wanted to do something that had nothing to do with anybody handing it to me. I saw guys, my peers that would, they would wait to take churches or position themselves politically to take churches. And I never liked that. I, I wanted to be as far away from that as I could. And I almost went too far the other way. You know, th- there, there needs to be good men who take good churches. And I, I was young and I was idealistic. And so I was probably a little more militant back then. <laughs> um, right. and so, yeah, you know, yeah. You know, to answer your question, I popped onto the scene and people accepted my ministry and and that's kind of where it started to to get bigger. Did,
1: did you ever have those moments? Uh, that uh, you're, you're thinking to yourself, "Be like, well, here I am. No one knows who I am. Nobody's calling me. Nobody's asked me to go preach. And then ever had those moments in prayer. And then all of a sudden, God like bring it to your memory. It's like, well, this is kind of what you wanted, isn't it?
0: <laughs> you know, I, 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 I'd never looked at it that way. Well, I'll take that back the first. Good. So when I, when I was like, you know, 20 and 21 before I started the church, I was falling into that rut. It was this, Mm -hmm. you know, you got to go to a conference, you got to network, you got to, and I actually remember, I remember the moment God dealt with me. I was, I think I was 21. I was at general conference of the UPC and I was with a group of young preachers. They were my peers. And, you know, we were doing the UPC thing um, this is what we did back then. You know, we we were young preachers. We had our calendar. We were ready to schedule a revival. And we wanted to schedule a revival at a big church. And so that was our idea of success. It's not my idea of success now. <laughs> I just want to go where God leads and you can edify somebody. Um, Amen. But we were in a circle talking and I can remember having on the the Hugo boss suit and the meslon shoes and the hair was just right. And my calendar was ready. Boy, I was ready. I was, I was, I was ready. And I saw CM Beckton walking down the hallway
1: mm-hmm.
0: and I left that group. I said, hold on guys. Well, I, I, we knew brother Beckton. I, we used to run over to his house from grandpa's house and he was kind to us. And I ran over there to meet him and, And halfway there, the Holy Ghost smote me and said to me, Nathan, why are you going to talk to him? Do you care about him as a person or are you doing it because it might give you an opportunity as a young preacher? Wow. And I just stopped. I'll never forget it. I'm standing in the hallway. People are flowing past me back and forth. And Brother Beckton was a great man of God, and he just kept on walking. He didn't even know I was coming, and he—I remember him walking by me, and I just stopped as God spoke to me and rebuked me and said, "Your motives aren't pure, and you need you need to look at at being an authentic person." And I remember repenting in that hallway that day and asking God if You'll make me a better person. I, I want. I want to live for you. I really want to do your work. So I, I I I began to feel called to start a church. And so I picked a place that that needed a church, that I knew needed a church, and that political opportunities would not be a factor. I wanted as far wow. away from the spotlight as I could get. Um And so I picked four Myers, and I felt it was God, and I know it was God. And um, so, yeah, that's kind of my thinking. So early on, I kind of was beginning to think that way. God dealt with me, and thank God he pulled me out of that. And Mm -hmm. then for the next 10 years, my only thoughts were, How can I win this person to God? How can I teach them the doctrine? I began to fight for the souls of men and women. And I forgot about the outside world. And now here's an interesting story. And I don't mean to belabor the point, but this is, this is what happened. Like five years later, I, I planted the church. I was three or four years into planting the church. I was in my mid twenties. I went back to a general conference. I had, I was able to save up my money. I couldn't afford to go to general conference. So, wow my wife hadn't seen her friends. We, we had been alone for several years and, um, we were digging out the church and we had fellowship with another church or two that was local, but we didn't have the national network anymore. And, uh, I didn't have the money to do it. We were home missionaries and we were living hand to mouth. And I remember asking God, God, my wife is sad. She needs friends. We need to connect with some people if you'd make a way for us to go to general conference, I'll go. And, um, I opened the door and five, $100 bills flooded to the ground. Wow. Now, $500 wouldn't get you much today, but back then it, it paid for the majority of going. And I mean, I don't know if somebody stuck it in there, if an angel did it or, but somebody had stuck five, $100 bills in the upper part of our door of our main door her house. And um I took her to General Conference. So when I got there
1: You know that would have been really bad if they put that money there in a place you guys never found it. <laughs> yes, it would
0: have that would have been like a bad if it, deal.
1: If it hadn't have fluttered down. Yeah.
0: Yeah. That's right. When I got there <laughs> I'll tell you, I'll never forget it. Um I went back to those same friends and um boy their their suits were brand new and some of them had hit the big time they were preaching for bigger name guys a few of them weren't there anymore they'd gone charismatic and and here i was my i was wearing the same shoes they were kind of scuffed now my suit was a little dated it wasn't the newest model and i remember thinking man i feel so out of place i I don't care about the same thing these guys care about anymore. And, and then I realized I don't even like this atmosphere. And, um, so I fell in love with the church planting paradigm and Bible studies. And I, I believe, and I'm, I i do not mean to cast that, you know, everybody, their motives aren't right. There's wonderful preachers that are preaching that are doing a wonderful job in all areas of Pentecost. I'm thankful for them. Um, but I, I have changed my idea of evangelism from being a preacher who preaches a powerful message at a church to a a person who actually evangelizes the lost. That is an evangelist. And, um, yeah, that's how I, that's how I, so I never got to that point where I, man, nobody's calling me. Nobody's I'm, I'm down here. Nobody. I, I, I got past that into the actual work of the city.
1: Praise God. Um, I, I I want to be respectful of your time, and I think we've just hit over an hour and a half. So oh I, I do want to ask just two things. One thing, just because it just popped into my mind, you mentioned that you had friends that you know they had made it into the quote unquote big time, and you said you had friends that had gone charismatic. Yeah. And and and, and whenever you said that, it kind of popped out to me that as many with, with you know, you've been in around a lot of prominent individuals throughout your life. Uh, I'm sure you've eaten at a table with names that just about anyone out there would recognize. So you've known a lot of people. When you see people that you respected and people that you love decide to walk away from truth or go charismatic, what does that do to you? Does it make you want to dig in deeper? Uh, What are your thoughts on that? How How has it affected you seeing friends that have gone the wrong way?
0: You know, it saddens me. It saddens me to see that. Um, you know, there's I, I, I grieve for them because I love them. And I feel like they're giving away priceless treasure for 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 trinkets. And you know, a lot of times that happens. People forsake the original apostolic message. They get um an education, they become what I would call pseudo-intellectuals. <clears throat> Some of the greatest intellectuals I ever met were apostolic preachers who had a handle on the doctrine and could expound voluminously on the oneness of God and the great apostolic preachers and statesmen of the early days of Pentecost. They formed our world and our world view. And a lot of guys that I grew up with and around my generation they went to seminary, they, they fell in love with big crowds at denominal churches, and they felt like apostolics were backward. Well, holiness people do walk away from the limelight. We don't need the limelight. We're not trying to be the Hollywood version of the religious world. <laughs> um, okay. and, and a lot of them fell in love with that. There were a lot of guys who they just became carnal. They did not read their Bibles. They did not pray. They didn't pay the price. Sometimes they would marry a woman that would pull them away, who was enamored with the world, who wanted to be very worldly and very carnal. It's not much different than the the ancient kings of Israel and princes of Israel that would fall in love with the neighboring nations and they would lose their faith in the one true God. Some of them were corrupted in seminaries because they didn't have a, a strong foundation in the word. Um, A surprising amount of them, I found, would compromise because they never actually did the work themselves. So their grandfather did the work. A lot of them, their fathers did the work, but they didn't do the work. They were privileged. They were pampered. Their hands were soft. And they knew all the answers and they had all the ego of, of a prince in Pentecost, I guess. But they had never labored and fought and bled and sweated to dig something out. And, and probably people would look at a home missions time in, a, in, in their life and say that was the toughest time. And it was the toughest time in my life. But it was also the greatest time. And there's something you gain in the doing. Every young adult, you know, the Bible says it's good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Every young adult should have some kind of a missional activity where they've got to roll their sleeves up. They've got to give of themselves. They've got to push past what they think they're able to do. And God will honor that, and God, it, it creates something in them. And that was the greatest time in a spiritual sense of my life. So, to answer your question, it grieves me. I pray for them. I love them. But if we're not careful, you know, we'll become like the Roman aristocracy of ancient Rome. We'll become lifted up, proud, exalted. All the cares of life, all the accoutrements of material wealth, and you can fall in love with that stuff, just like Israel did, and you can lose it all. So, I don't want to be Solomon or Rehoboam. I want to be David. <laughs>
1: right. So so today you now pastor in Durham, North Carolina, in a church with a tremendous heritage in its own, uh with a tremendous <clears throat> bishop of Johnny Godare, uh who was there for several years. I, I I'm not sure exactly how many years.
0: Forty seven years.
1: Um Forty seven years. Yep. Uh he was the first executive chairman of the WPF and there's there's a a lot of heritage that has gone into North Carolina. And, and and what I'm, I have seen from afar is, uh, obviously I, I was actually surprised the first time that I, I found out that you had been elected there. Um, I think I saw somebody post something about it on Facebook and, uh, and I'm just curious here in, in kind of the ending, uh, what is it that you hope to see in kind of everything together? kind of the whole conversation together, we've talked a lot about heritage, where you are again is another place where you're inheriting a heritage, and I'm interested what you want to see done and what you believe that you have to add in what's going on in your context in Durham, and then the greater context to make it uh, something that all of our listeners can connect with, that all of us that are in the Apostolic Church, we have been gifted uh, this great truth what is it that you hope to see not just in your church, but within our generation that that, that we'll, we have now, what do you hope to see going forward within the apostolic church? Mm.
0: What a, what a great question. Wow. Well, Bishop Johnny Best Godin. Yeah. I'm telling you, man, we're going to go out with a bang <laughs> here. Hopefully I can, I, like that. I can not talk everybody's ears off and I can answer, answer it adequately. Um, <clears throat> they don't come any finer than Bishop Johnny Godair. Bishop James Sandy and Bishop Johnny Godair outside of my family have been two very great formative influences in my life. Um, the great men and the work brother Godair has done here in Durham is stunning. He is one of the greatest soul winners. He has built one of the greatest churches. It is a lighthouse in Pentecost. It is primed for explosive revival it's filled with worshipers it has a worldwide reach and so nobody was more surprised than me when he called we had been friends he was a mentor and an elder in my life but I did not expect this I loved South Haven in the Memphis area and I still do it was outside of leaving Fort Myers leaving South Haven was the one of the hardest decisions I've ever made because when you love people as dearly as we did there, it was tough. And if it hadn't been a God moment and we knew it was a God moment and God confirmed it in some pretty miraculous ways, um, it wouldn't have worked. And the man that was going to step in here to follow Brother the would have to have a very, very particular vision and ethos in how he approached things and an anointing. And, um, Brother there, prayed about it. He contacted me and, you know, I came. I took some time to pray about it and, and it did. It was the will of God. To come here and to see the scope of evangelism, he is a soul winner. This church is filled with soul winners. Such a powerful mindset that's here. I, I If I hadn't been the grandson of N.A. Urshan, it would be very, very hard. But that is one part. You know, you asked me early on, is it hard to carry that name? Do you feel the pressure of carrying that name? The answer is yes. But, you know, A.D. Urshen wasn't trying to be a great man when he became a great man. And N.A. Urshan wasn't trying to be a great man. They were trying to be Christians and the best Christian they could be. And so I made up my mind, I'm not going to assume a natural mantle. I'm just going to be the best Christian I can be. And represent Jesus Christ. And and then represent my natural heritage as well as best I can. I want to be a steward of the influence God has given me. And when I came here, I approached it the same way. And Brother Godier is one of the most humble men. And most powerful men you'll ever meet. So to assume the pastorate here is humbling. It's daunting. He... Um, is just amazing I don't know anybody else like him and and, and this great church these great people it's, it's, it's an evangelistic dynamo and their worship their doctrine their evangelism it's world class now what that means is I pray I pray I can adequately step into the traces and assume the mantle I ask God to give me the grace to do it um, I pray people have patience with me you know as I blunder my way through it um but what I would like to see is a, an apostolic worldview. I do not have great regard for organizational boundaries. So I don't care if a person's UPC, WPF, PAW, independent, ALJC. If they're apostolic and they believe the doctrine. And they believe the core doctrines of the scripture, and that does include holiness. If they will embrace that, I embrace them. That's my brother. That's my sister. I love it. And I kind of view the apostolic world like Israel. You know, there were boundaries within Israel. And the tribe of Dan was distinct from the tribe of Asher, the tribe of Naphtali, uh, the tribe of. Ephraim, there were distinctions, there were lines, and each one had their distinctive characteristics, Characteristics, but they were all Israel. And, and you would go from Dan to Beersheba, and there would be differences. And I think there's differences in organizations in Pentecost. But just because we're in different organizations doesn't mean we're not Israel. And I may not be with this particular tribe, because we're so separated and we, we live so differently. I may not even intermarry in terms of our people encourage that because there are distinct differences that we're more comfortable with, with a, an ideology that's more compatible to how we live. But if some outside group were to come in and to try to attack one of my brothers, well man, we're gonna get the forces and we're gonna go stand side by side with that brother. And we don't have to agree on every single point, but I'll fight next to him, and I'll, I'll contend for the same thing they're contending for. And when the battle's over, Man. I'll hug their neck and I'll go back to my tribe and I'll keep on working for God and I'll love them from where I'm at. So that's how I view the apostolic world. I wish people would view it a little more like that.
1: I like um, that. I love
0: that. Yeah, I do too. <laughs> it's part of why yeah. I'm doing the podcast and, why I'm trying to reach out to people. Um I want people to embrace inclusivity racially. Um I don't want it to be a white movement or a black movement, but I want it to be a, an apostolic movement out of every kindred tongue, people and nation. I think the church needs to fight for that. I think we need to change our idea of evangelism from going church to church and just preaching candy stick messages. And we need to actually go into cities and win the lost. And when that evangelist leaves that church, that there's three new families sitting on the pews or on the chairs. I, so I think we need to redefine evangelism. Um, I want to preach this across the internet. I want to preach it across in every venue that we can preach it. Um, and one thing in particular that I think needs to happen is we need to understand dominion in the apostolic world the jews understand financial dominion and and natural dominion and investing and and taking land and and generational accumulation of power that allows the church to not only operate uh, as a spiritual force but also as a, a combination of natural and spiritual force and the last 10 years of my life, God has opened up the doors to a financial awareness of dominion and power that I never understood before. And I try to teach young adults this to become investors, to, um, to own, become owners, to change their worldview to not only shout and run the aisles, but, but to take dominion in their life. And to create an atmosphere where apostolicism is world class, where it's front street, where God is glorified. And at the same time that's happening, don't get lifted up. I knew, I knew a man one time that used to say, God will give you a Cadillac, just don't drive off in it. <laughs> so so I, I pray that we can balance f- dominion and power and still keep our brokenness and our humility before God the promises of Abraham, in other words. So that's what I hope to see.
1: Thank you so much for your time. And, and, and that there's so much information out there. So many things to consider, uh, so much words of encouragement. I couldn't thank you enough, uh, for taking the time to have a very crucial conversation with us. And so, uh, do you have any, any last words that you'd like to say,
0: man, I appreciate you having me on today. It's been a pleasure to talk with you. Um, Your questions, they bring back a lot of good memories. I thank you for the opportunity. I've enjoyed it very much, and I'll be praying for your podcast and praying for the work that you're doing there. Thank you for your burden to help people.
1: Thank you very much. Thank you for having a crucial conversation. God bless you, man.